Hello and welcome to The Pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jolyn Drennan and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today in the show, Chief Researcher at PCA America, Dr. Bart Klicka, takes a public health perspective on the neglect of neglect. And later, Children's Trust Data Administrator Becky Burke discusses what that means for New Hampshire. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, healthcare, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. .nhcf.org. This podcast was also brought to you by Family Support New Hampshire. Family Support New Hampshire is NH's coalition of family resource centers and family strengthening programs that exist to ensure Granite State families have access to resources so both caregivers and children can succeed because supported families are strong families. To find a family resource center near you, visit www.fsnh.org. Hey, it's Nathan, co-host of New Hampshire Family Now. I wanted to take a quick break from the show because it occurred to me the other day that I've never asked you to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribing is free, and when you do it, it helps our placement algorithms, making it that much easier for caregivers across New Hampshire to find valuable information and strategies for their families. Also, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. And if you like the show, leaving a review helps us that much more. So go to wherever you get your podcast, type in New Hampshire Family Now, and as the kids say, smash that subscribe button. I say click it because if you smash it, then you're going to need a new one. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today in the show, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Bart Klicka, Chief Research Officer at Prevent Child Abuse America, and if I'm not mistaken, quite the softball coach. Bart, it's great to see you again. Well, thanks for having me. I'm going to lean into that softball coach thing a little bit here, just because, well, one, my boys and I were at their gymnastics class, and it occurred to me that I have to do this now. (laughs) And so from a current coach to a future coach, what is the best piece of advice you have for coaching your own children? Oh, goodness. So you're going to start with that question. Here I have notes strewn about about preventing child abuse, supporting families. And you start with the hardest question about uh, supporting your kids. I will say this. I have two kiddos. I have an 11 year old or next week, 11 year old and a seven year old. My oldest daughter loves having me coach. My youngest daughter, not so much. And I've learned that kids are different. And ultimately, at the end of the day, they want you to be dad. And, uh, you know, my tendency is to always be in coaching mode. So we get home and they want to go throw the ball around. And I catch myself being like, okay, remember, you know, knocking the ball, like you're knocking on a door and then throw. And I'm like, no, I need to be dad right now. And and those are the things I think that, that I would say is you venture into the coaching world. They want you to be dad. And so make sure that you find times to just be dad. 
I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And last time I saw you was in Denver at the PCA Alliance Combined Conference. And I was quite taken by a few things. First and foremost, your ease with presenting research in a way that's digestible. And two, the conversation that you had with us in attendance about the neglecting of neglect, which I want to talk about. But before we get in there and really zoom in, I want to zoom out a second. From a public health perspective, what do we know about things like adverse community environments and how they lead to, say, adverse childhood experiences? So it's a great question. So let me start with the public health piece. So when we say the term public health, really what we mean is what we do as a society collectively to ensure the conditions in which all children and families can be healthy. You know, the public health approach forces us to think about strategies that focus on that that idea of conditions, the conditions in which children and, and families live, which has implications for the types of strategies that we look at. And so oftentimes when we're coming from a public health strategy, we're looking at implementing things like policies that are going to affect entire populations. And, you know, you you brought up this issue of adverse community environments. And so our friend and colleague, Dr. Wendy Ellis, I think has a, a fantastic graphic um, and she calls it the pair of aces. And, and really, it's a depiction of a tree. And if you can imagine, we're looking at this tree and up above the surface, you know, the trunk, you see the trunk, you see the, the branches and you see the leaves. And she says, those are like the typical adverse childhood experiences that we've heard of. Things like child abuse and neglect, substance abuse. You know, it's many of the things that when I was a practicing social worker that I would see coming through the doors. But she makes the argument that below the surface of that tree are the roots of that tree. And it's really the roots of the tree that are driving the health of the branches and the leaves. And so she makes the argument that just like we can see the adverse childhood experiences as the leaves, below the surface are what she calls the adverse community environments. And those are really driving adversities for families. It's things like poverty, lack of opportunity, racism, unemployment, lack of housing, all of these things that we know that families struggle with that increase stress for families. And we know that there's an association between the stress that families experience and many of the adversities that they struggle with. Now, I love, love that picture you painted here because I've seen this also as an iceberg. You got the 1090 thing, which is not the haircut I'm talking about, but the, (laughs) you know, 10% above the water. The interesting thing about the tree metaphor, it shows that kind of causation. And so, you know, and I know we're talking about this metaphorically, but let's put a pointer on this and make it explicit. What is then the connection between adverse childhood experiences and the preventing of something like child abuse and neglect? Well, I think what what we see is that, you know, the, the point I was making about families under extreme stress, extreme deprivation. And I'm talking about families that are living in adverse community environments that restrict access to opportunity, that there aren't resources locally, that those resources are not provided in culturally or linguistically relevant ways to them. Or there are services, but those services are otherwise provided with, they come along with some form of stigma. 
if that's the array that families have in terms of what is going to support them to be parents, we understand why families don't access those resources. And we firmly believe that all parents need support. And so when parents go at parenting alone, under extreme conditions of stress, we see that being associated with things like child abuse and neglect or involvement in the child welfare system. Yeah. What are some of then the opportunities or strategies then that we can implement to promote these preventative measures? So in the the last, I would say, decade or so, there's been a resurgence of interest in this idea of concrete and economic supports to families. I think that the science is mounting and clear that when families have what they need, we see reductions in things like child neglect. And so when I say concrete and economic supports, I'm talking about the, the various policies that we have to support families. That can be policies such as paid family leave that we know many states have enacted at a state level, but also talking about things like child tax credits, earned income tax credits, housing support. We're talking about food stamps. We're talking about an array of policies that support families. And one of the areas that we've really jumped into in the last couple of years, and and this is some of the work that I've been doing, we're funded from the CDC to evaluate the effects of paid family leave and child care subsidies in reducing child abuse and neglect. And we look at these two policies in tandem because we think it is so important to think about that early child infancy phase. You know, you have a child and we know that's such a critical and sensitive period of development. And so we want to make sure that families aren't having to choose between taking care of their child or leaving the labor force, Mm. right? We want to be able to say what strategies can keep you connected to the labor force, but at the same time, be there during this most critical and sensitive period of development. And then when that time is done, you know, we think about that time as like a paid family leave strategy. And at some point, it's time for parents to return back to work. And when they do, we want to ensure that families have high quality, accessible child care support. And we know the cost of, of child care across this country is astronomical for families. It takes up a huge portion of their monthly budgets. And so how do we start piecing policies together instead of assuming that there's one policy that's going to do it all and starting to say, how do we start building an array of policies, whether it be at the state and or federal level that are going to support families throughout development? Because we say, you know, kids don't just have needs when they're young. You know, uh, I think that as kids mature and develop, they enter new developmental stages. There are new needs that families have. And so we've, we've done a lot to invest in early childhood, which I think from a prevention standpoint is what we really want to do. And at the same time, we want to ensure that families have support when it's turn five, when kids turn eight or gosh, the situation where I'm in where I'm finding myself with an 11 year old. And I sure wish I had some support around learning right. what teenagers need. So building of an array of policies that are favorable to families and the support of early childhood and children as they develop, it strikes me what we are also battling is the stigmas that we hold around parenting. Is there any science 
out there that is unifying that experience? I think the way that I would make sense of that, Quinn, I think it's a great point. And what it makes me think about is some of the work that's done around the idea of social norms or or mindset shifts. And, you know, we've really been interested in, you know, what does the general public think about our issues? You know, what do, do they understand what we mean when we say prevention? In conversations that we have with people in the general public, they hear prevention and they say, oh, yeah, well, we have a child welfare system uh, in our community. And so there is a piece here around thinking about educating the the general public about what what is prevention and and really sending the message that prevention is possible here's what prevention looks like and and here's why it's important to invest early and often you know, being able to show all the the great things that we know can happen as a result of prevention so i I do think that there's some work there around kind of these mindset shifts. At the same time, you know, we've talked about it a little bit so far, but this idea about stigma that exists, there, there's a lot of stigma that exists around families accessing services, receiving services. And I, I share an experience from my my own life in terms of stigma. You know, we had our first daughter and I think if my first daughter taught us anything about parenting, it was that, man, we sure don't know a lot. And so when we found out that we were pregnant with our second daughter, the first call that I made, I was in Missoula at the time, first call, and we had a universal referral system for home visiting. And I was so excited. I I called right away. I got her name on the list. I said, I want a home visitor during this time. And I was working with the health department in some of my work and they sort of were scratching my head. Even the health department was like, why do you, why do you want a home visitor? And I said, cause there's so much that we as a family need help with. We've not parented two children. We, you know, we know every pregnancy is unique. And even when I told my friends, I say, oh, well, you know, our home visitors come and they'd say, oh my gosh, what's wrong? And so even from my own experience, I understand the stigma associated with services and programs that are meant to be nothing but supportive for families. And, you know, even within my own household, I often say, what do you think happened every single uh, Tuesday night before our home visitor came on Wednesday? What do you think that my wife did in the house? Cleaned it. She cleaned the house. And why? Because she was afraid that if the house were dirty, that we would be reported to Child Protective Services and our other child would be taken away. If this is what families believe about services, be it family resource centers, home visiting, no wonder they don't want to utilize these services. You brought to mind a conversation I had with a couple's friend where I that came out. I was like, yeah, we had a home visitor and it stopped dead the conversation. And I could tell they both looked at each other and were trying to ask delicate questions about what was wrong with our household. And I felt it and I was like, oh, this is what they mean. So I get it too. Mm-hmm. Now, when we've been talking about these things, or I've been approaching this as obviously the prevention of abuse and neglect, you made a point in Denver very specifically to uncouple these and differentiate between abuse and neglect. Now, why would you do something like that? Maybe I'll even complicate it a little bit more because what we haven't specifically said during our conversation today is the issue of child sexual abuse. And so I would say we're here talking about child neglect. We're talking about child physical abuse. We're talking about child 
emotional or psychological abuse, and child sexual abuse. These are all different forms of abuse that every state defines in a different way what they categorize as abuse or neglect, but these are are really some of the most consistent groupings uh, that we see, but specific to neglect and physical abuse. From a public health standpoint, what we oftentimes try to do is, first and foremost, we want to understand a problem. In order to understand a problem, we have to define it, right? So the first thing we do, we define the problem, and then we go out and find out how big of a problem is this? Where in the, how big of a problem is it? Who does it affect within a population? And then we start looking at what are those factors that increase the likelihood for this problem to occur. Now, there are likely, and there we know that there are shared risk factors that increase the likelihood for both child neglect and child physical abuse. At the same time, the mechanisms driving each of those might be slightly different. I think in Denver, I had presented a slide where I I kind of broke down some of the concrete and economic support research. And I said, you know, let's kind of look at what they're finding across these studies. You know, whether we're talking about paid family leave, childcare subsidies, earned income tax credit, minimum wage, Medicaid expansion, SNAP, all of these types of concrete and economic supports, what we're finding is the most consistent decreases that we're seeing is with child neglect. And that's whether we're looking at reports, whether we're looking at substantiations, or whether or not we're looking at at parent self-report behavior. Now, that's not to say that concrete and economic supports aren't reducing things like the risk factors for physical abuse, but it's how it is that we're trying to make sense of our science to say, well, concrete and economic supports might be driving bigger decreases with things like child neglect than for child physical abuse. And so what we don't want to do is just say, look, we have found our strategy, and that is we're going to invest in all these policies and expect that all forms of abuse and neglect are going to decrease at a a proportionate rate. And what we're seeing is that might not be the case. And so we might need somewhat different strategies, interventions to be able to address child neglect versus something like child physical abuse or child sexual abuse. Yeah. When I go back into that scholarly work that was associated with the presentation you had, the neglect of neglect has been written about for nearly four decades, if not longer. So what is it about neglect that has us as communities or states or even as a society in total neglecting it? I came across the the first article that was written. It's a, a famous article called Child Maltreatment as a Social Problem and Neglect of Neglect from 1984. And, and there's one quote that I pull out and I'll, I'll read for you here. So remember, this was written in 1984 and it says, a more adequate child care policy is the only one likely to curtail significantly the incidence and prevalence of both neglect and abuse. It would include the provision of adequate income, health care, decent housing, safer neighborhoods, employment programs, and other sources that are requisite for a positive family environment. This was written in 1984. Many times when I'm presenting about concrete and economic supports, I say something along the lines of something very similar to that. And at times, people's minds are blown. They're like, wow, this is impressive. And I say, maybe so, but this is not new. We've been talking about this for 
decades. And I think part of our challenge has been there is a historic conflation of poverty and neglect in our country. There's a conflation of the two that when we track back to the even, you know, 1974 with the passage of CAPTA, CAPTA has done incredible things in terms of creating support for community-based prevention work about creating research arms so we can understand something about the consequences of abuse or neglect. But when it was passed through, what in essence CAPTA did is it created a bifurcated system in our country, one of child protection and one of voluntary care and support for families. And so we have decoupled these systems and they've continued on. Now, one of the challenges that we have is because we don't have that unified child, family, and well-being system, when a, you know, for example, an educator has an issue, they have a concern about a child, they don't know what else to do. So what do they do? They refer them to child welfare. We don't have an alternative pathway, per se, to say, I have some concerns about a child. Maybe they're showing up hungry. Maybe they're showing up and, you know, it looks like maybe they don't have housing. I'm not sure. I think they need some support. We don't necessarily have that place where we can refer families to and support them. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have a system where we report families and they enter into a child welfare system. If we continue with this bifurcated system that doesn't have a child well-being mindset at its core, where are we headed with all of this? Well, I would say the term inevitability, what gets me going each morning and what keeps me going in this work is a fundamental belief that prevention is possible and we will get there. I have to believe that every single day when I get up to do this work, and I genuinely do believe it. And I see movement in corners, as we were talking before this podcast, of of the innovations that are occurring around the country to really reimagine what a child and family well-being system would look like. Some of the work that organizationally that we've been involved in, some of the work around thriving families and working with systems across the country who are really trying to think about how do we do this differently? Child Protective Services is not was not established to necessarily deal with the needs that are coming through their doors. And so how do we reimagine a system where families can get what they need when they need it in the communities where they live, delivered without stigma before they find themselves in crisis? And that means learning from our failures of the past. Talking with families, engaging families in our work in new and creative ways to say, you know, those with lived expertise need to be at the forefront and helping as as authentic partners in helping reimagine what a child and family well-being system would look like. And so I, I, I tend to hold some optimism here and believe that we are on a track. There are spots of or beacons of hope across the country where we're starting to see these innovations take some root. We're seeing administrators at the state level, at a national level, starting to recognize that we can't continue down the path that we're going, that something has to change. And that's what gives me hope that we're not on an inevitable path, that we are making the changes and that it's going to it's going to take a lot of what we've talked about today. It's going to take mindset shifts. It's going to take norms change. And at the same time, it's going to require of us to do things differently. We have to partner in new ways. We have to think creatively. We have to take off 
what oftentimes for myself can be that sort of facade of a professional hat and say, I don't know everything. And there's a lot that I need to learn. And I have to find ways to listen in new ways, both to families who have been affected, but at the same time, to communities, listening to communities about what they're already doing that works, instead of assuming that as an outside person, that I know what's best for that community, because I don't. And so it's requiring a new type of listening, I think, for many of us in the field. See, this is why I wanted you to come on, because you talk about a topic like child neglect in a way that's clear and inspiring Thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. To learn more about the work of PCA America, visit preventchildabuse.org. That's preventchildabuse.org. And when we come back, I welcome Data Administrator Becky Burke. Don't go anywhere. Many thanks to New Hampshire's Office of Social and Emotional Wellness for sponsoring this podcast. Started within New Hampshire's Department of Education, the Office of Social and Emotional Wellness consolidates policy development and implements projects and programs that are focused on health and wellness with an emphasis on behavioral health of all students, youth, and families. To learn more about the Department of Education and its many programs and approaches, visit www.education.nh.gov. Today's show was also brought to you by the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy and Protection Program, a multidisciplinary program with the Children's Hospital established to evaluate and provide integrative care to suspected victims of child maltreatment. Together, a team of physicians, advanced practice registered nurses, social workers, nurses, and child life specialists work to provide consultation and evaluations of children who are suspected victims of abuse, so to serve in the best interest of children and families at multiple levels of prevention. For more information about Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy Protection Program, visit www.chadkids.org backslash child advocacy. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. On the second half of the show, Children's Trust Data Administrator Becky Burke joins me to talk about my conversation with Dr. Klicka and what it means for New Hampshire. Becky, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. So a few months ago, you brought up the separation of neglect from abuse. And then, of course, I had my conversation with Dr. Klicka. Is there something going on, a growing recognition, say, that is causing this kind of conversation to occur both nationally and here in New Hampshire? If we look at the data, both in the state and across the country, uh, we need to be more intentional about separating not only neglect from abuse, but we also need to be more intentional about disentangling neglect from poverty. So if we take a look just at the New Hampshire data from 2020, for instance, there were uh, 1,182 substantiated cases of child abuse and neglect in the state. Of those, 1,010 85% were for neglect. So there's a huge uh, abundance of reports, some of which then go on to be substantiated for neglect. So I tend to look at this whole issue through the lens of what some people understand as Maslow's hierarchy of need, that um, most people need to feel a sense of safety and security for themselves before they can go on to build a sense of belonging and before they can do self-actualization and all those other, other kinds of things. If we apply a similar lens to families, that lens becomes concrete supports. What do families need to feel stable and secure? And what do children need? 
So housing, food, heat, being able to work and having working transportation, by the way, to get to a job, right? All those things. So, you know, I think sometimes children show up places and they're hungry or they don't have the proper clothing. So there's a report for neglect that gets issued to DCYF. And with all of this, there's a comment from a parent that has always stuck with me. She said, if I wasn't poor... I wouldn't be considered unfit as a parent. Interesting. So all of that to me feels like we really need to be much more intentional about looking not only at the delineation between abuse and neglect, but disentangling neglect from poverty. Dr. Click also mentioned, though, that that access to concrete supports is a proven method to reduce incidences of child neglect. Now, two part question. Why? And what efforts are happening here in the Granite State to those ends? So I often turn to Chapin Hall, which is a research arm at the University of Chicago that really specializes in trying to figure out child abuse and neglect and policies that that either hinder or you know allow it. And they have all kinds of research there. One of the things that really caught my attention around this particular topic is that they have done research that says for every $1 increase in the minimum wage, the percent of reports for neglect decreases 9.6%. So that to me, right there, that to me says there's a large proportion of neglect that is not intentional. It's not malicious on the part of the parents. They don't have the resources. They also have a lot of research around uh, around policies, around other concrete supports. So TANF, Child Care Scholarship, uh, SNAP, or what we call food stamps sometimes, Medicaid, all those kinds of things. In New Hampshire, uh, I think a couple things need to happen. And some of this is already underway, right? One of them is that I think as the public health emergency ends, mm-hmm. to the greatest extent possible, I think we need to maintain the levels of support that we've provided to families to the greatest extent that we can. Uh, I think another one is reducing the barriers to apply. If I'm a stressed caregiver, if I'm a stressed parent, trying to figure out how the heck to apply for some of these things and all the forms I need and what needs to be submitted and when, you shouldn't need an advanced degree to apply for some of these benefits. Right. And, and, and that is part of the value that Family Resource Center staff offer. They work with families to help them apply for these. But honestly, we should reduce the barriers wherever, you know, wherever we can. And I have heard more than one person in New Hampshire say, oh, well, you know, we, we leave money on the table. Like families aren't, aren't accessing these, these supports that we offer. Well, there's a couple things there. One is that we need to make them more available or, um, you know, more people aware of them, right? There needs to be much more promotion and awareness of them and then reducing the barriers to apply. Yeah. When you first said the study, was it Chapin Hall? Yeah. I was thinking, is that your blue jacket that you often wear? Is that the designer as well? (laughs) I was going to ask you about the family support data system. So because you had mentioned it Mm -hmm. about what concrete supports then are most requested? Absolutely. So almost every family, when they come into contact with a family resource center, this, you know, the staff does, uh, you know, they have a conversation with the family and they assess what some of those barriers are. So if we look at uh, 50% or more of the families that come into contact with, with FRCs statewide uh, need help with housing, utilities and fuel assistance, childcare, and transportation. And transportation is often around having a working vehicle. 
So those are the big ones. And then if you ask families, where have you encountered difficulty even in the last month? Mm -hmm. Between 30 and 40% of families said, yes, in the last month, I have experienced difficulties with this. So It makes me want to partner FRCs with a Grapponi Automotive or something like that. And I think there was an effort in the past to do it, but around car repairs, if there were some way we could partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, you do know what time it is, Becky Burke, don't you? Oh, geez. It's time to play Messing with Becky. Mm. We really need a theme song. Messing with Becky Burke, who likes data better than people. Way better. Welcome to Messing with Becky, <laughs> a game where I put the essential in essential question. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I think I'm ready. You may not know this, but you are our first three-time guest in the history of the show. Wow. So congratulations. Also, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that it's been three. <laughs> I do have a gift basket for you, but of course I left it at home. Mm. The game today is I'm going to name or list the items in that bag. And with your great investigative mind, you're going to tell me why I chose to put those items in there. Oh boy. Item number one, a bottle of ibuprofen. Well, I think we all need a bottle of ibuprofen. (laughs) (laughs) That's on me. All right. Item number two, a mug with the word data printed on it, a greater than symbol, and then the word opinion. Uh, I would say that uh, data and facts uh, should outstrip and outperform opinion um, any day of the week. Sounds like an opinion. <laughs> so last one, number three, my wife's cell phone. You, Your poor wife and her cell phone, you bring this up every time. Because she's still looking for it, so I'm going to need it back. <laughs> Becky, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for coming on. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Nathan. Many thanks to the Samuel P. Hunt Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Established in 1951, Samuel P. Hunt Foundation is a Manchester-based, independent nonprofit that provides grants primarily for the arts, children and youth services, faith-based organizations, educational institutions, healthcare, and human services. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance, an entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. New Hampshire Family Now is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play New Hampshire Family Now.